Welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have a very, very interesting show. I have invited back James O.D., the author of several books. Uh, latest time we had him on was discussing Cultivating Peace, Becoming a 21st Century Peace Ambassador, and this time we'll be speaking about his latest book, called The Conscious Activist, where activism meets mysticism. Certainly one of our favorite subjects here at A Better World. James is very well known in international social healing circles because he has conducted healing and reconciliation dialogues for over 20 years. He is the co-director of the Social Healing Project, which led him to Rwanda, Israel, Palestine, and Northern Ireland. He is on the extended faculty of the Institute of Noetic Sciences and its past president, and was also the former Washington office director of Amnesty International for over 10 years, testifying frequently before Congress. James is the lead faculty person for the Shift Network's popular Peace Ambassador Training, with hundreds of participants worldwide training to become peace ambassadors under his mentorship. His previous course with the Shift Network, The Path of the Peacemaker, attracted students from some 24 countries. James also offers breakthrough intensives for emerging leaders of all ages. James was also recognized as, quote, champion of peace, reconciliation, and forgiveness by the Worldwide Forgiveness Alliance. It's wonderful to invite James back onto the airwaves of a better world to discuss this brilliant work. I've got to say I interview so many people, as many of you know, who listen with regularity, and it's with just the deepest honor and pleasure that I've asked James to come back again to join, wherein we can discuss this uh, magnificent and, uh, in James' work, refined relationship between activism and one's own spiritual development. And uh, it's a confluence that we would love to see more of in this world. I feel it's it's the place of our future activism, and James is embodying that right in the present. James, welcome back to A Better World. A pleasure to have you, my friend. Great to be with you, Mitch. Truly. So glad. Accolades to you and your work in the media. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, James. You know, your your book is uh, just so powerful. It's so moving for those who really take the time to see your own personal and professional development, which you really make abundantly clear through it. And one can see, you could say, the the, the germs, the original blueprint of the DNA of an activist, but yet someone who also has this deeper mystical yearning, longing for a world at peace. And we see that as the outer manifestation of our lives as well as an inner one. And you, you clinch that relationship really magnificently in the book. I just wanted to sort of open with that. So um, from the outset, <laughs> thank you for this work. I feel it can be inspiring for many. Thank you. I'd like you're so welcome. 
I'd like to uh, kind of engage you to start with with uh, a little storytelling, which is something you're very accustomed to and you do so well in the book. Uh, lead us a little bit through the earlier parts of your life, which sort of opened up your sensitivity to the injustice you saw in the world, as well as your sensitivity to the domain of spirit. Would you just kind of wind us back to your early life in Ireland and then England and um, what you felt were the seeds of your later blossoming? Sure. You know, there's so much science these days that's gathering about the what happens in the womb and how much of our story is related to the womb environment. It's fascinating science. And so in my Free case... perinatal psychology is uh, truly one of our favorite subjects here at A Better World, James. You're oh, really, right up yes. our alley. <laughs> Should be, yes. Good for you. Yes. So in my case, my sister died in her 11th year, falling down the steps at school and smashing her spine. And my mm. mother was in mourning. Little did she know that just days before that occurred, I had been conceived. And so oh. my life began in mourning. And then think of the science, not only of the womb, but of the field effect. The whole family, you know, in crisis, in mourning, the loss of tragic loss of this little girl. Yes. And so I, I'm breathing in my mother's pain, her suffering, her injury, and it sort of imprints me for life. I'm yes. sensitive to the wound. I'm sensitive to the crisis in the world, to the suffering in the world. And then when I'm born, my mother says, you know, to the family, it's time to end the period of mourning now and to celebrate the new life. And so that imprints me too. Mm -hmm. The beginning of my story is a fractal uh, from suffering and woundedness to celebration. And that's really what has allowed me to go deeply into the world's chaos and suffering <laughs> and human rights abuse. And as that's I very interesting. To hold yep, that sense of... Yes. This is not the end of the story, folks. There's something else coming. There's a brighter future ahead. And it isn't a sort of cockeyed optimism. It did lead me, as you were saying, in terms of my early childhood story, it led me very early to the priesthood, at least. I thought that was the direction I was going in. Yes. And I had to persuade my parents, let me go to this remote seminary in the north of England. And they said, no, it's premature. And I just, I beat them to it. I said, no, I really have this intense longing to do spiritual life. And Mitch, you know, we must never, ever undervalue the spiritual life of children. You know, yeah. I, I know last week you were speaking with Andrew Harvey, and yeah. he talks about revelations that came to him at age nine. At age, mm -hmm. you know, I was off doing prayers and fasting and silent days. And it was elixir to my spirit. It was pure yeah. intoxication of the spirit. But mine was not a life 
that was going to marry the institution of the Catholic Church. Right. And so in my second year, I rather dramatically broke from that. <laughs> Not from the spirituality, but from the structure. And, the, you know, it was very chaotic and immature, and and yet there was some bigger seed inside me saying, you must leave, you know, and I couldn't call my parents and explain to them. I just had to break free. It was like yes. going over a great ravine and, you know, just seeing this emptiness as I ran away in the middle of the night, stealing money. And it's a great initiation, really. It's a pattern it that I see in in the soul's progress, that sometimes there is, a, there is a rupture that leads us to another world. So the spirituality that was calling me into the priesthood started to, when I came back to my home in London and started growing up, I saw around me the poverty and the conditions of senior citizens and the lack of care of the social welfare services. And I Before organized... Before that, James, I would like to just take a moment to look at the first uh, segment of what you've been saying here in light of the womb story uh because as we know there is a very strong sense that life imitates birth which is the name of a film that describes exactly that by a woman named Monica Matos who we've had on the air as well so that the expression of our lives very much is the uh blossoming of the seeds from that time and as i was listening to you just now and the very profound story of the stealing of money at your very early age, which acted as the thing that uh, allowed you to escape from a structure that really wasn't serving you as optimally as you thought. I began thinking about what you were saying about your sister's death, and you were coming into the womb, like literally being discovered, if you will, days after, almost like you were stealing life. Ah, how powerful. That's very interesting. You know? And stealing so a chance there you to, are clutching. Yeah, go ahead. Stealing a chance to serve in the world. Exactly. So there was a formation inside you at this very tender age, and you describe it beautifully through the... <clears throat> the experience of the wound of the mother, because if people were to think about it biologically, the mother, and, you know, later on we may say, my father and I are one. But certainly at the earliest stages, it's my mother and I are one. And it's quite literally true. So her emotions are your emotions. And there's no separation whatever, literally, between them. <clears throat> her pain was yours. And this is, of course, also the idea of the archetype of the wounded healer, where children or infants or uh, fetuses are actually embryos are experiencing 
the wound of the parent and sometimes the parents uh, and carrying that literally Im- embedded in their heart, in their cells, and, you know, literally in their soul. So anyway, I just kind of wanted to kind of contextualize some of what you've been saying here. So interesting. Beautiful, beautiful context. Okay, yeah. And the other thing, you're such a beautiful man with such such a life of, of stories of triumph and sadness and heartbreaking and coming back through. It's very interesting that uh, a young fellow at your age back then with a longing for the priesthood would have been found stealing money. And I just think it's highly courageous of you to tell this story so openly. And also it shows that there is so much of a growth that has happened in you from an early age to all that you've done and the power of, let's just say, what we might refer to as transgression becomes a building of character instead yes, of our rather myopic into, conventional way of thinking. Yes, please. And it sorry. sends me into the world rather than into the the spiritual dimension of classical Christian. religion. And it says, exactly. look at the world if you have a tender heart. See the suffering. Yes. And and that's what made me organize other young people at that early age. And I yes. you know, received... Please pick up where you were going toward Mrs. Winter. <laughs> okay. Yes, yeah, so I received a Teenager of the Year award for my work. But one of the cases that... Uh, was brought to our attention was this woman, Mrs. Winter, and when I got to the house, I couldn't get in. There was no answer, and then the neighbor let me climb over the fence and go into the back. Unfortunately, I didn't have to break the kitchen door down. And I tell you, it was like a scene from Dickens. There were plates piled up in the kitchen. The gas stove was burning, but there was nothing on it. It was moldy food. Then I saw her slipping into a room, and she crouched in a corner, and she kept crying. My name is Winter. I'm cold. I'm so cold. My name is Winter. And in that room, there were just piles of rotting food. And then I, I, I smelled something terrible, and I went into the bedroom, and there were purple, moldy chickens, on on the floor. There's all kinds of fecal matter, and oh, it was just a nightmare. You were and all of the age of what, 16? Yeah. 17? Yeah. yeah I, I felt this <clears throat> rocket fuel of rage and intense oh, God. compassion. And I, I, instead of going out the back door, I opened the front door like I was opening some... <laughs> metaphoric, symbolic door, let the light in, call the police, call the ambulance, do something about this. I really felt that that energy that can so motivate a young person and motivate an activist. And when I got the award for Teenager of the Year, I got a letter from 
the government from you know the minister in charge, and he said it seems as if you have a strong critique of the way we deal with senior citizens. Could you come and discuss your concerns with me? What a nice mm. thing to to do to invite me to a dialogue. And you know what I did in response? I wrote back and said, in that fire erupting of molten outrage. You know what you need to do, and when you do it, we can meet. That's moral outrage on a very high horse, pointing at the world, saying, change your behavior. And it comes from a place, but it gets lost. It comes from a very beautiful place. It comes from deep in the heart. But then it gets on its horse, and it rides high. And, you know... Refusing dialogue, Mitch, is adolescent. Yes. That's one of my first lessons in the the book about activism. Is like, get off your high horse and do the work. But never refuse dialogue. Dialogue is the way for humanity to move forward. The root of this uh, word is dia. It's Logos. the arrogance of adolescence, and we all have tasted it very well, and hopefully later on we abandon it. But what a powerful lesson you learned. On one hand, you were being your actions and words were being exalted, and on the other, you used it to further insult the the hierarchy. <laughs> and uh but you learned. You learned a lesson that has stayed with you for life, and God bless you. You are uh, conveying it, James, to all of us. Which and think, Mitch, of always dialogue. Lack of dialogue in our country. The yeah. way people shout at each other and insult each other. It's adolescent. What we see in our government and our politicians is is men who have never gone beyond their adolescence. Correct. And who do not know how to dialogue. This word dialogue means dia logos, through the logos, through the higher mind, through the higher purpose, we can come together, you know, not standing on our own high horse. You're so right. And honestly, in the proper etymology, understanding that of the word, the, such a simple word for us, is got the profound implications of what can set the world on the right path right there, James. And in that word with people dialoguing and trialoguing and the like, but engaging, as you said, the higher mind. Noetis, noetics, the noesis um, also, where we can reach into our higher mind and heart and dialogue. And I, I personally believe that and you really highlight this notion in the book uh that that is the way to peace that is the way to maintain create a uh, a sustainable harmonious society and without which we actually we actually won't have it we won't have it that's how big a, a point it really is would you agree absolutely and what we see you know in this field of activism and mysticism is a gift that is possible for humanity when we move out of the abstractions 
You know, I think it was Alfred North Whitehead, the great philosopher of the 20th century, who said, people are controlled by the merest abstractions. And now we have this kind of, what I call the labyrinth of seduction. Yeah. You know, do you need another upgrade, Mitch? You know, the seduction yeah. is always tra- trying to tell us we need upgrades. We need we need to stay with the program. Yeah. And yeah. and it's you know, it's the same idea as the Matrix. It's an illusory yeah. world. Where we right. say, well, I signed an online mean. petition, so I'm a, I'm now an activist. Or I got yeah. a mantra, you know, and I'm now a mystic. <laughs> and I don't want well, to belittle anybody because every effort counts. But we must move deep into the territory because this territory has so many gifts and breakthrough possibilities for humanity when we really yeah. integrate the kind of well, activism. Unlike so many that, other people that are uh, engaged in their own spiritual development and evolution, which is utterly wondrous in itself, you have positioned yourself on the very front lines, James, of what's going on in the world. You could say the strength of humanity is as strong as its weakest link, the old adage, and You've positioned yourself at those weakest links to strengthen the rest of the body of humanity, and I have utter respect for that kind of service. Uh, And I would wish that a lot of our friends and colleagues would really kind of uh, digest the message that you have modeled, not just spoken of, but modeled. In fact, in that light, if you would, uh, just continue a bit of the narrative because you're becoming teenager of the year way back uh, in England ultimately led you to moving to Turkey and having some extraordinary experiences there, including your own getting knifed in the presence of incredible political polarity. Uh, could you talk about that? Tell us that story, if you would. Yes, indeed. And I think leaving England for Turkey was like my childhood leaving of the Catholic Church. I had uh-huh. to leave an environment that was too cozy, that was just too nice and yeah. too safe. I had to go again to that place where I had to cross the chasm on, yeah. a, on a high wire. And the so hero's Turkey adventure. Was, yes, deep adventure. And that night I was nice to you know. There were some left and right wing students fighting, and I hid in a doorway off a side street in the marketplace and thought everybody had gone. And when I came out, there were five left, and they thought I was a straggler from the other group. They immediately attacked me with a knife. And uh, I was kind of a bit of a Celtic whirling dervish (laughs) trying to (laughs) save myself. How old were you at that point? I was uh, 27. Hmm. And 
They got so me in again. In the midst of their their fight, you were identified as the other uh, pol- uh, a member of the opposite political party, and even right. though you're not Turkish, even, and you ended up suffering a stab wound. Uh, and it's interesting. I've been to so many places in the world. In Brazil, they say I look Brazilian. In France, they say I look French. In Turkey, I look Turkish. <laughs> and my Turkish was not great. I was shouting out, Yabanji, Yabanji. And Yabanji, I later found out, was, well, it can mean you're a foreigner, but it can also mean I'm not from here. It can also mean it's not my fight. So oh, I chose God. the wrong word. Anyway, they got me against the wall with a knife, you know, pointed right into the lower rib cage there where the heart resides. Yeah. And I squeaked out, I am I am English. And one of the guys, yeah. I'll never forget his face, pushed the man with the knife away. And I was left struggling, and then I was bleeding so badly. I'll never forget this also. I collapsed in the marketplace, and a man coming through found me, dragged me into his car, and dropped me at the steps of the public hospital and drove away. He didn't want to be involved, but he was the angel of the night that saved my life. And then you would think from that experience, so here we go into the deeper story again. You would think from that experience, you know, the natural reaction was, I'm getting out of here, you know, I'm going to run away, you know, this is too much. And instead, it was like what had happened was something was pierced deeply inside me and opened. And it was like, my God, I have a life. I'm alive. I can do something with this life. The gift of life is so powerful. And it's that birth of deeper commitment. I don't think you have to be knifed in the back street to get it. It's the birth of that deeper commitment that, again, is the gift to the world. When we can go in our journey and find that that imperative, that call to life, that says, wow, life is so precious, live it fully, be there. Mm. God, yes. It's almost like, James, that at the moment at which it was going to be taken from you, that you felt its beauty and power more than ever. And that was an awakening that happened. And isn't that even one of the uh, kind of cosmic explanations, if you will, of why we have on planet Earth the notion of polarity at all? So when people feel grief, they can then appreciate the tenderness of joy. And when they experience the possibility of no life, they can experience the magnificence of vitality, you know, that we learn through the experience of the opposite. Yes, very well said. And that sense also that when we go to the root, deeper into the root of our own being, it gets yes. safer, brighter, more potent, more real. Mm. And, mm. you know, that's where the power lies. I know Marianne Williamson 
talks, uh, tries to evoke this power, and, and in some ways so do I. You know, I talk about in the book one of the qualities of a conscious activist is humility. And I put the word power next to the word humility. And because it's that going to the root of yourself, do you have the humility to be yourself? Stop being falsely modest. There's much too much of that going on. It's self-esteeming. Humility is really the belief in yourself, the ability to say, in that raw sense of the root of the self, this is me, folks. Having the power and the audacity to say, this is me, I am I'm coming, I have my gift to share. And selfishness mm-hmm. that and hiding that and trying to obliterate it into the group is a false modesty that then denies us our true power. So it's a wonderful, I think, adventure into that word humility. It says Indeed. it's of the earth. You know, it's the uh, same uh, root. Exactly. Just what I was about to say. It's from the Greek where we get the word, uh, of course, humble, but I think it's also related to the Greek word humus, which is that which springs from the earth. And we, of course, along with chickpeas, <laughs> spring from the earth. We are speaking with James O.D., the author of several wonderful books, and we have had James on A Better World Radio in the past, and today we are gifted to have him again to discuss his book, and we are The Conscious Activist, where activism meets mysticism. James has an illustrious career and background in working as a social activist and reconciliator of opposites, both on the material and the immaterial planes. And uh, James, it's such a pleasure to have you on. It's such a pleasure. I just want to... So good to be with you, Mitchell. So, you know, you truly, have truly. such a deep ability to commune. And that, again, I think is one of the skills that we need in the new media is communing with each other, is getting beyond the superficial. Because the superficial lacks passion. It goes beyond likes and dislikes to deeper passion and Mm -hmm. unearthing that. So thank you, thank you. That's right. That's right. Well, you're so welcome. Uh, By the way, I meant to let everyone know that you can get our free newsletter, a Better World newsletter, which is at our website, www.abetterworld.tv. Sign up for it, please. Become part of a Better World family, a Better World community. Also in the newsletter are the uh, access points to the books of our guests. In this case, James's books right there. There's a link directly uh, bringing you to the host of his good works and uh, easily available. So please join us and also learn about our Monday evening television show here in the middle of New York City every Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. So with that said, James, I very much appreciate your words. And, you know, there is this idea of activist which is um, noble, and full of energy, and, you know, for those of us who grew up 
during the years of the 60s being active in uh, in thumbing our nose up to the entire notion of war is not a new thing. <laughs> this is something many of us have been living with for literally, virtually all of our lives and sensing and becoming incensed uh, in the presence of injustice is just uh, more than the heart and soul can take. And your life has just taken on uh, taken on the issues of injustice. Would you share a little bit of what you've encountered yes. as you've sat at the tables with the Rwandian, the Rwandans, as an example? Um, what have you been able to get through when seated? seated? Um, and talking with people who are seething with with anger, if not hatred. Yes, well, you you get that sense that there are two things going on. There is that burning sense of justice where you, like, you can relate to that in people who are oppressed, the Palestinians and others. And At the same time, you've got to hold that fire and then hold a healing fire. And in my own journey, you know, it is complex. It is developmental. I want to say that because and I think, you know, in amnesty of those times when really it's that, in, that, that outrage, that, that burning for justice that creates sometimes incredible breakthroughs, like the story I tell of, you know, the the dungeon in the Atlas Mountains where we testified about in Morocco. And uh, so many of the prisoners died in that prison. And when I testified, I read a letter that was smuggled out by one of the guards whose conscience was struck. And it described the dying prisoners dying of starvation. And it was where the king sent his favored, his special prisoners. And you could have heard a pin drop that day in the Congress as they said, how do you spell the name of that prison? And I spelled T-A-Z-M-A-M-E-R-T, Tazmamert. Six months later, that prison was closed down. And a year later... One of the men who had spent 17 years in the prison came knocking on my door in Washington. Very, very powerful moment in my life. And he said, I want to thank you for my freedom. You see what a, what, what can happen when we mobilize. And yet that other fire is a new requirement, is a special requirement of the conscious activists that serve you must serve wholeness, inclusion, healing, reconciliation, forgiveness. You must carry that fire too. You cannot be a partisan of the parts. You have to be a servant of the whole because it's the whole story that needs to change. It's the whole configuration that we're pulling forward in this conscious movement that integrates science, spirituality, and activism. Do you read me, Mitch? Oh, James, loud and clear. That was eloquently stated, and I I agree with you. How do I say? Wholeheartedly, whole-mindedly. Uh, it's 
it's a distinction that you draw in the book over and over again, a contradistinction between uh, activism that is truly wholehearted uh, being incensed by injustice, which is a powerful motivating force for so many of us. And then the recognition of the larger whole in which that injustice is occurring, uh, a larger context which has to do with our relationship to our higher selves, our highest self, to the cosmos itself, to the, the incredibly exquisite domain of beauty, of awe, of the mystery of life itself. And in that way, the injustice, horrible as it is, is in a sense resting in a larger space, which allows us to be very deeply human in a beautiful way in the face of the injustice. And that's what I gather a lot from you as a person and what I've read in your work. That Thank you. And bringing, I want to acknowledge... Yeah, you get that? Yeah. Yes, thank you, thank you. I want to acknowledge to the visits with the Kogi people, the Aboriginals in Australia, the Native Americans, yes. what they taught me. You know, I had a very interesting experience in Australia with an Aboriginal woman who invited me to go there. And she painted me in the traditional Aboriginal format. It was very intense and sacred ceremony just between us and it was in her home and then she put uh, kind of different objects and, and it kind of created a circle around me as I lay there painted and immediately mm -hmm. when she left the room my my mentors my icons came Martin Luther King Gandhi Jesus, mm. and they were walking in a circle around me. I could visualize them intensely. It was so powerful and beautiful. And then lickety split, like just, just as you would click your fingers, it changed. And there were these horrible, deformed, monstrous beings full of hatred and spite. I saw the words fight so clearly, spitting at me it was, taunting me. Mm. And uh, from the kitchen, Janara, the Australian woman, shouts out, Oh, don't worry, they can't hurt you. Although they do make it a little difficult. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, that is so beautiful. And that oh, was that kind of... story tells it, tells it, really tells a larger story, yes. Yes, it, it shows you in the roots of the psyche what poisons we have to clean out. That's, That's the work right. of that the mystic can help you with. The Kogi know this too. They know that yeah. so much goes on at the level of energy transmission. We may have talked about it the last time and I was on your call, but I truly believe in the future that people develop the skill of energy reading. And mm -hmm. energy reading really helps us make peace with each other because we can read each other's energies without getting yes. caught 
different forms of conflict. In the Kogi, there are the yes. beautiful beings on the mountain in Colombia. They read, read, read your energy, and then yes. they respond to you. And so oh. it's a deepening journey that the native people know about. Indeed. Indeed. That's so very true. And this is, well, you were the president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and so you're very tuned in to those other domains of human potential. And I personally believe, as I think many, many, many of us do, that those other aspects of human potential do not reside in the ability to memorize more facts. Um, or even in necessarily conceptualizing more academic points, although that has its value, uh, but rather in reaching deeper into energy fields, what we refer to as our own and what we refer to as each other's, and connect to the more boundaryless uh, collective uh, morphogenetic fields, of course, that uh, Rupert Sheldrake spoke about so beautifully. Uh, and here's an example with the Kogi. I've heard about their their extraordinary skills that they develop as children, just as they learn to speak. They're developing the ability to read uh, fields. Could you speak about another story, not entirely uh, unconnected to what you've just been saying, James, is the story in Cambodia with the flute player. And you tell the story after you speak of your relationship with Krishna, a very deep and uh, abiding relationship that you have. Could you share, because this is a story that I just, I talk about humbled. I, I became, upon reading it, so deeply inwardly quiet as I was beholding uh, the utter mystery of life, of how death is so near on our shoulders, so to speak, one moment, and then escape and love can be the healing balm down the road. Yes. Um, and it's a, a wonderful... Yes, and it's a wonderful example, too, of this deeper quest to bring the incarnation of the spiritual into the reality. And we can talk yeah. a little bit later about the perfection in the imperfect world. But this yeah. story is, I've had this connection with Krishna somehow the God who plays the flute, calling us out of suffering, who swallows the poison and then makes music of it. That is an archetype for me. Mm -hmm. As you can have noted in the book, then I bring those archetypes into reality. We must taste them. We must see them. Krishna is not just on an altar as an icon. Krishna comes down for me in the incarnation of this boy, Arn Shorn Pond. He comes and incarnates as a boy who's learning to play the flute, the classical flute in Cambodia. And one day he's picked up by the Khmer Rouge with about nine other children. 
and the other eight boys have their heads smashed against the temple wall and die before him and he's clutching his flute and one of the Khmer Rouge says play for let's hear you play us your flute and he plays so beautifully that these men who are butchering carry the boy with them on their on their journeys of savagery and he plays he becomes the flute player at genocide he even in the midst of this terrible suffering and genocide he even reminds the butchers these deep human beings who get lost in ideology and and war he reminds them that there is something beautiful that, mm-hmm. and he carries that off of the things that he's seen men being devoured, their stomachs being opened up and eaten alive, and things that no child should ever, ever, no human being should ever have to see. And he crosses the killing fields and gets to Thailand, and then is is lucky enough to be brought to the state by Peter Pond. When he's in the States, I hear of him. Who is Reverend Peter Pond? Uh, he's dead now, but he was a minister in Rhode Island and went to Who Cambodia. Was in Thailand helping refugees from Cambodia? Well, he had become a friend of an interesting story. He's become an en- a friend of the Queen of Thailand. And she said, is there anything I can do for you? And he said, I have three wishes. Give me three children from the refugee camp, and I'll bring them back to the States. That's how they have, how he mm. got to the States. And when he was growing up, I was organizing a Human Rights Day event at the National Cathedral in Washington with members of Congress. When you were director uh, at Amnesty International? Right, Washington office director. Mm-hmm. And Arn Shorn stood up, and he broke people's hearts. He broke them. He let his music come through his words. They were again was Krishna, and he was. He said to them all, after describing the horrors that I've just described to you, he said, "I'm alive today, not because Khmer Rouge butchers." Failed to kill me, or their bullets failed to enter my body. I'm alive today because I can love again. I can experience love for humanity in my heart. There were there were those notes singing so wonderfully that sing to my soul that someone who could go through that level of hell could sing the the song of love, the song of reconciliation. What a being, what an incarnation of Krishna. So thank you for raising it. Oh, my gosh. It helps me see what I at least now feel are my own limitations, very honestly. I cannot begin to imagine what it would have been like, James, to have experienced what he did, 
while he was playing the flute in that context for the Khmer Rouge, seeing what he saw, escaping, and then being able to love again and love life, love living, love people. Uh, that is an, such an extraordinary 180-degree type of transformation. Talk about transformation, you know. I mean, a word that's bandied about in the New Age circles. Who knows what but this young man. That's transformation. And it helps us into this conversation that I think people want to have because there's it's the conversation that says is there perfection how can you have perfection in an imperfect world and the perfection for me cannot be reached by simply going off as I tried to do as an 11 year old boy going off for your spiritual encounter with the spiritual world and neglecting this world. It has to be integration. That's why the whole second part of that book is called Integration. Yes. And so, you know, Louise Diamond, I don't know if you knew her, but she was a peacemaker in Washington all of her life. She helped establish the Institute for Multi-Track Diplomacy. Beautiful being. She died just a little while back. And she mm-hmm. said to her friends, you know, as I die and as I pass on, just visualize me going into the light and say the word perfect. Say that word mm. perfect. Interesting. And so Interesting. That, that sense of the spiritual reality can offer us a sense of connection with perfection in a way that is truly mysterious, that it can be perfect. We can suffer, we can go through trauma, but it's how we open to that reality of love that we talked about with Aaron Shorn. It says, yes. perfection wins the day, my friend, when love can call out like that through such horror and suffering. And yes, it is an imperfect world. There is a world crisis. There is injustice. We are entangled in it. We're part of the whole maze of interconnections. And when we learn to mirror love, the Sufis call it polishing the mirror of the heart. When When the mirror of your heart shines with love. It's perfect, my friend. It's perfect. Mm. And you have done enough, and you are complete, and you deserve to die the peaceful and conscious death that Louise died. Mm. With that sense of, it's perfect. So matching those two concepts, I think, is something that we can give more attention to. You know, you are revivifying my relationship to that word because I uh, started a petition to have it removed from the English language. 
Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, really not. I've given it up. I've given it up. But I felt that. Tell me why. No. (laughs) The notion of perfection, James, I felt was causing more harm than good. (laughs) Because we are trying in some kind of platonic way to measure up to a notion that we really will never achieve and if we could accept the imperfection of life the Im- there's an inherent imbalance you mentioned the sufis you know it's in the um turkish rugs that a an imperfection is deliberately put into the weave to remind us all of the imperfections in life and it goes that way we're always wobbling we're never static you know and it's not a bad thing it's just if it doesn't go too far so i felt perfection was actually hampering however the beautiful intonation you gave it of the sufi idea of polishing the heart that i can understand perfection in that is that's the fine definition of perfection. So consider my, my petition withdrawn, would you please? Well, I, I, I think there are always nuances to look at. <laughs> I would that... agree. I would agree. Listen, I'd like to uh, ask you. I, I, I feel like I'd like to uh, ask you a couple of things. Well, first of all, because the Israeli-Palestinian conflict continues unfortunately so so potently up to today and there is such rage on both sides of the question and unfortunately there are sides as opposed to some greater sense of unity and unification could you tell the audience what it is both you encountered when you were seeking to form some greater uh, mediation? And what do you see as, if you see, I believe you would, some solution, some very real practical solution today? Well, what we see in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is what we see in, in many different conflicts, which is the inheritance of the wound and the tragic, tragic reality that if you hold on to the wound, the wound persecutes you in the end and becomes a persecutor. It is so... Such a deep and difficult story because we all have sympathy for those who are wounded. The great, great woundings that occurred, massive woundings that occurred to the Jewish people and the wounding that continues for the Palestinian people. And then if, if that wound is passed on from generation to generation, it's sort of even becomes hallowed indeed what did you experience by yourself directly when you were involved 
in that particular negotiation? What, what did you experience as the particular issues and hardships that you were seeking to reconcile on both sides? And what did you face when you sought to create that reconciliation? <clears throat> Well, I spent a lot of time in dialogue with psychiatrists, psychologists, and social workers. We had a whole mm -hmm. series of, of dialogues together from yeah. Israel and the West Bank and Gaza. And even there, what I experienced was people who were psychologically fluid, who were trained in these matters, the difficulty of releasing the past. And the, you know, there was one powerful moment when a Palestinian in the group took out of his bag a piece of cloth and he unwrapped the cloth. And there was a large, it looks like, you know, 17th century, a large antique key. And he said, I still hold the key to our family house that is now in Israel. And one day I want to return. And one of the Israeli psychologists, with utter compassion, I mean it, with utter compassion, said very firmly, you will never go back. You will never go back to that house. And it's that kind of work we need to do for us that says yes. that version of you will never get back, you will never go back, yes. said with love, said with intense yes. love, it is time to leave it, to move on. Yes. And we can say that with yes. large to both the Israelis and the Palestinians. Don't go yes. back. Don't go back to your history and the chronology of, you know, your wounds. And see in the persecutor, see in the perpetrator where the wound goes. You know, we learned from that. I learned that from so many dialogues, that the yes. perpetrator is wounded. And when you can get to that place of really saying, how did anybody get so wounded that they would do the things that they did? How can the yes. people who are in ISIS at the moment, the atrocities they're committing are so outrageous. Where is that wound? What is that wound? What is the nature of that wound? Where did it come from? It's that mind that we need to see because that's the yes. healing mind. That's the healing yes. perspective. Is able to look into the darkest places and say, you know, how can we heal? How can we heal the wound? And there's so much of my work in social healing dialogue has been listening to people go through that process where they, they come to forgiveness, they come to releasing, you know, I tell in the book the story of the professor in in Virginia whose mother was murdered brutally with a baseball bat. He was in one of the dialogues. 
and he himself had been teaching forgiveness. The mystery works in mysterious ways. He was a teacher about forgiveness. And he comes home, finds his mother brutally beaten to death, raped and beaten to death. And he talks about his other brother, who just couldn't take it. The wound was so savage to his heart that this, his brother committed suicide. And he says, there you have it. Unless you release the unforgiveness, unless you release the bitterness, the rage, the violence that is being done to you inside your heart and mind, you will never find healing. There will not be a path to healing. And so, you know, it is really the releasing of unforgiveness, the toxic of seeing that unforgiveness is a toxic wound that will kill even more people, will wound even more people. Yes. You see how the virus spreads, Mitch? I do. I do, James. You know, uh, my, uh, my, beyond what I do with, uh, a better world is I am a psychotherapist. I think you know that. And I spend a good amount of time reaching down deep into people <clears throat> and their relationships and what creates the hurt, what creates the pain, what creates the wound, and how to resolve. And the answer always, always is dialogue. Always, always. Feeling, seeing, sensing, acknowledging, speaking the truth of one's experience and coming back out and locking eyes with other people where our souls meet in that precious space. And that helps to liberate us from that past pain and come to a place of where we need to be to dialogue ourselves into the future. So I I hear you loud and clear. That's and, beautifully uh, said. You know, I say <clears throat> I say that there is another quality of the conscious activist which I refer to as equipoise. Equipoise, mm. what a beautiful word. Yes, uh, balanced true. poise. Is that yes. balancing of the going in to the heart of all these matters and then the yes. balancing of going out and I say you know equipoise is is like a tightrope walker being able to balance over a great and deep ravine it's the courage to balance to move into danger we can't move into danger in that way with that balance if we're really caught in our own reactivity. Mm -hmm. So we have to go deep. You know, passion is a story of death. Likes and dislikes are superficial. Dogma is a lack of passion. It's locked in superficiality. Very true. When we go deeper into passion, we find that we can balance the inner and the outer and step into... You know, step onto our own tightrope. Each each human being has their own tightrope in their life. They have to step out onto 
with the courage to transform and move forward. Mm. And so I think Absolutely. that I'm deeply hopeful that there is this integration is occurring. You get to sit in the catbird seat, my friend, and talk to people <laughs> and see again and yeah. again the transformation yeah. that is coming. It's coming below the radar screen of the corporate media, but it's here yes. in the voice of soulful and conscious people who have the courage to dialogue on the airwaves. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Thank you. That is really true. It's really true. Um, I want to, if you have a few more minutes, I, this is so kind of um, uppermost in my mind, and uh, my family, my sister and brother-in-law and my three beautiful nieces have recently relocated to Israel. And uh, on one hand, I'm so incredibly happy for them because it's a place they feel is home for them. And on the other hand, I feel acutely in pain about the Palestinian-Israeli question. And based on what I understand from you and the going into the wound in a very practical way, which I, of course, fully understand, relate to, and agree with, that would be taking uh, a seat with Benjamin Netanyahu and others et al. and their Palestinian cohorts and having a dialogue of this level, not talking about throwing stones, not throw, talking about handmade missiles, not talking about any of the outer effects of the deep pain, the outer manifestations, but talking about the pain that we have been suffering generationally as Jews, as Arabs, all Semites, of course, very curiously, and going deep, deep, deep into that profoundly human space, James, and speaking the pain and speaking the truth and coming to a conciliation there on those levels, on the levels of the heart and soul, before the rest could be discussed. Is that a type of dialogue that you have either sought to engage or believe must be engaged or believe can be engaged in I think it is happening in various places there are wonderful creative creative initiatives between Palestinians and Israelis there's the bereaved family forum where where it's exactly on track with what you're saying where people who mm -hmm. have lost relatives to the violence on either side come mm -hmm. together and say... And what is the name of that group? The, the Bereaved Family Forum. Bereaved, okay, got it. Uh-huh. Beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know there's a summer camp that 60 Minutes did a segment on of young Israelis and young Palestinians, teenagers, adolescents, going up to a camp, I think it was in Maine, and just 
being open with each other about both the upset, the pain, and the joy of just getting to know each other. And such a beautiful foray into the space. I, I so appreciated it. Yeah, so you're saying that there are all these, you could almost say, citizen, citizen diplomacy, citizen level, uh, instead of the governments themselves. Right. There, as with this country, we don't look to our politicians for particularly enlightened Leadership. behavior. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, but you I, know, just I, to wrap things yeah, up. Please. The uh, you know the story we began with, where you know I'm born into the vortex of grief and suffering, and then I get to, and I'm actually born, I get to celebrate, you know, or be celebrated, get that story, that sense of, yes, of fractal of the two, and it's putting mm-hmm. me that sense of, I talk about this in the book too, as one of the qualities of the conscious activist, where that sense that resolution is the goal. We hold that vision so deeply in our hearts that we bear that. That's a much more powerful story in reality than the story of the wound, because the wound is a story that pulls you back. That sense that, you know, I invite you to imagine imagine resolution. If you're not even in this state of imagining resolution, we have a problem. If you're in a state where you're you're sort of saying, oh, isn't it terrible what they're doing in Syria? And oh, isn't the crisis with the refugees awful? And isn't the nuclear situation terrible? And, you know, where is that? Where is your imagination of the resolution of the story? Where is the field in your... The feel in your energy field, that taste. The mystic knows all about tasting. The mystic has to go, you know, without any other props or help, into the territory where they taste the reality of the divine and they know it. And then our, our challenge is to bring that tasting back, is to be that energy field that says, you know, resolution is possible. I see it. You know, I I think of the abolition of slavery and all the years that it took visioning and revising, you know, to come up with a solution that began the end of it. There's so many of our stories take persistent visioning and holding the energy and somehow, in the great mystery, that energy is joy. In the midst of suffering, there is a possibility of finding joy. You know, I talk about the Palestinian in the rubble of the camp, you know, with death and destruction all around him, serving me coffee, serving me coffee. And I saw the indomitable spirit of the human being and it's that indomitable spirit that says, joy and love are the end of the story. 
They are the realization of our true capacity. And it's that sense that in its wickedest form, I'm a sucker for good endings, for beautiful endings. <laughs> oh, oh, let go of that. There shall be a good yes. ending. And we have to yes. imagine it, you know, imagine the resolution. Because if we're not there, then we're not setting the field for the future. Exactly. You know, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, it's the child's imagination that gets him and her into the greatest fun in the sandbox. And that's what this whole world is. It's a big sandbox. And uh, I wonder what in the world happened to so many people's imagination that go in the way of death and destruction. And I so frequently say on these airwaves, James, that God's greatest gift to us, besides love, that's just the cosmic force of the universe itself, is imagination. Is imagination. And... uh, We know that even supported by neuroscience, that when we envision, as you were just describing, in a a discipline-focused way, that vision literally begins to materialize our future. So it's not only from the poetic nature of the heart and soul that say and beckon us to envision, It's actually corroborated by our understanding of science and the way the mind and the brain work together. So, talk about beautiful endings from beginnings. I just, from my heart, thank you so much for your powerful work, both in action, your work at Amnesty International, your work in any number of different reconciliation and mediation groups over and uh, organizations over the course of many decades and your brilliant work as a teacher and a writer. It's a true gift, James O.D. I so, so appreciate it. Here on A Better World, this is, uh, this is our life force and you're helping to nourish it and allow it to flourish. So thank you. Uh, thank you, Mitch, for the deep communion of the heart. Much love so much. Thank you. And we will continue again another time. All right? Yes. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now. James O.D., author of The Conscious Activist, and uh, this book can be purchased through our website, abetterworld.tv. Click on newsletter. You'll see a whole write-up on James and his work and as well as his other books, Cultivating Peace. I so appreciate his work. And he mentioned Andrew Harvey at the beginning of the show, of the interview, and he is, with his work of sacred activism, is another you know great favorite and friend of a better world. Uh, work of this sort is so touching. It takes us out of the realm of just uh, the mind and into the real world where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. And James has been positioned over and over again on the front lines of battle, literally battle, uh, and uh, in Ireland, in Africa, in different parts of Asia, 
elsewhere doing this incredible work. And organizations such as Amnesty International, when I think about it, one of my very first interviews on A Better World TV was with one of the former presidents of Amnesty International. I felt, oh, it just helped me fall in love more deeply with the power of media. That is the intelligent use of media. That is bringing the stories, the narratives of those who are doing incredible work in the world to the foreground for all to hear and knowing now what we know about mirror neurons and the power they have in uh, absorbing modeling and recognition of that plasmic interconnectedness between us all, we realize that we are one with the words, we are one with the story, and we are literally cellularly absorbing those stories of triumph and victory over the darkness, over the shadow. And it's really a way to think, and it's also why to be highly wary of listening too much to the stories that end only in destruction and death without the light of hope at the end of that tunnel. We are absorbing all the time, and let's absorb things that are nutritious to the heart, mind, body, and soul instead of those things that create toxicity. And that way we are joining collectively in creating a better world. In fact, there's a line here in James's book that uh, I can uh, locate it. My only slight criticism is that the point size of the type is too small. Well, for my eyes, which are generally pretty good, but here we are. I think I found the passage. Wish me luck in making all the words out because they're in italics. The activist is constantly asking people to make choices that define whether or not they are consciously willing to forge a better world or put their, oh my, in the sand, (laughs) so sorry, because they don't care enough to look at what is going on around them. That's on page 93 of James O'Dee's book, The Conscious Activist. I think that's a very, very important point. You know, we are utterly overwhelmed with the input of media, in fact, print media, commercial television, online, internet, email. We're literally bombarded like never before. And being able to discern amidst it all, amidst the chaos, what matters most and how we can make a difference. And, you know, internet activism is one way. And personally, I think it's better than nothing. And we should all engage in it. However, there are much more potent ways to make a difference if only we had more time in a given day to do so. It would make life a lot easier, and that engages a whole other 
question about economic pressure, et cetera, that we all experience in different ways, volumes, if you will. But the work of Sam Daly Harris, who I've had on the air a couple of times as well, and his book, Reclaiming Our Democracy, and the uh, techniques he gives in engaging our democratically elected leaders, or so they're supposed to be. Um, so we have several levels of creating peace in the world. We have several levels of activism. On one hand, we have the magnificent uh, heartfelt work that James and Andrew Harvey and myself talk about with regularity. And that's getting deeper into the psychological, the psycho-emotional, the deeper spiritual aspects of why people perpetuate violence of all sorts, of all sorts. That's where I, the story really lives, right there. The resolution and the healing there, forgiveness, apology, all those characteristics of deeply human life. And then there's the other level, which is the practical level. And by the way, that is eminently practical, eminently, and has the most powerful effects on the whole. However, on a perhaps, we could say, more immediate level, the writing a letter, the making a phone call to our representatives to support or not certain pieces of legislation uh, is mightily important as well, as well as, by the way, writing to the media, especially the mainstream commercial outlets, and letting them know how dissatisfied you are as a viewer with their incredibly narrow, superficialized reportage and how you feel they are leaving out the essence of what needs to be discussed, that we, in what is called alternative media, I like to think of it as the real media, authentic media, service to the people, we are covering. We do address the deeper, heartfelt dimensions of humanity and bringing them to the foreground. Yes, of course, you will find some of that on even commercial television. It really is there. Uh, but it's in embryo. It's minute in comparison to 24-7 programming, which is usually trying to sell us something or other, usually drugs. Oh, God. The drug war? I see where it needs to be waged. No, I'm not into war in any way, shape, or form, quite honestly, except the war against foolishness. And that shouldn't even be a war. But understanding can help assuage that. Anyway, I think you understand the value of such beautiful, beautiful beings as James O.D. and Andrew Harvey and so many other people who are doing magnificent work on this planet. And they are all over, make no mistake, they are all over uh, the stories of the sung and the unsung heroes, some of which were described today, the uh, gentleman, young man, the flautist in Cambodia, the reverend who wanted 
from the Queen of Thailand, just three people that he could help to give a new life to, which he did. This is the kind of activity taking place behind the scenes that we're just not greatly aware of. Hence, the value of such broadcasts as A Better World. So please, please take this, share the link with your friends, with your family, with loved ones, with foes. It doesn't matter. It's a heartfelt message for everyone to help us all go beyond the ego, behind and beyond the pettiness, and get to the things that matter. I just want to remind you all as well that A Better World has recently become a nonprofit organization. And to keep us alive and to keep us sustained, please invest in us. You will get, through Uncle Sam, a tax deduction for your kindness, your generosity, and your simple common sense investment in keeping this kind of media alive and more than just alive, thriving. So from that point of view, we ask you to really consider what the world would be like without this kind of discussion, kind of dialogue with men and women we have on every week talking about these incredibly deep subjects and with the hope that these can effervesce throughout the world and make a difference so we can achieve that sense of, uh, dare I say, Shangri-La, Shambhala, this type of uh, heaven on earth that we all know is possible, a better world we all know is possible. I like to say that uh, we have the DNA emblazoned in our hearts. It's in our chromosomes, and it's just calling upon us to let it be expressed and let it out. So it's with your help, as Reverend Jesse Jackson said, we all may have taken different boats here, but we're all in the same boat now. <laughs> so on that note, please do think of us. Go to our website, abetterworld.tv. If your uh, contribution slash investment is somewhat larger, certainly feel free to contact me directly at mjr at abetterworld.net. My initials, MJR at abetterworld.net, or call us at 212-420-0800. And also, we love your feedback. We love your stories. We love uh, hearing what impact many of these stories and shows have in your life. And that's what keeps us going. A little commercial, (laughs) just to say, so to speak on non-commercial radio? Not exactly. Uh, my class, A Better World Workshop, commonly known until now as Heaven on Earth Workshop here in Manhattan, New York City, will be resuming after a recess over some of the summer on September 10th, Thursday, September 10th, 7 to 9 p.m., down near Wall Street, actually, 40 Exchange Place, we welcome you. Just contact me first so you can learn the details. It's very, very affordable. It's only $40 for uh, two hours of our workshop. Every other week we meet, and it's a chance to do some qigong, some stress 
management techniques, and then we dive in to therapeutic theater. And based on neuroscience and neuropsychology. So, with that said, I thank you so much again for joining me here today, and I look forward to seeing you all 